it was a Saturday morning. I was in bed, in my bedroom, probably staring at the balloon wallpaper and all of the posters that I had on my wall. I heard my mum coming upstairs and she came to my door and she said, it looks like the letter's arrived. This is Carly Goldsmith. Like me, she grew up on the Whitehawk estate in East Brighton. She hadn't opened it, so she didn't know what the outcome was. And I can remember feeling how significant that moment was in my life. She opened the letter and I read that I'd been awarded an assisted place. The assisted place meant that I got a place at a fee-paying independent school for girls. And my mum said something to the effect of, like, of course you got it. Like, you were never not going to get it. Which was so different to how I felt. Because I'd been through the exams I had to do and I'd visited the school and I'd had to read in front of the head teacher and I'd got a word wrong. And it felt so not like a place where I would be. And it wasn't on my estate. It was nowhere near where I lived. It was kind of on the border between Brighton and Hove. So a very, very different environment, a very different kind of place. In episode one, we heard all about Carly Goldsmith and her family. We heard about her and her brother's early years and how Carly ended up applying for an assisted place in a local private school. That letter her mum brought up to her bedroom signalled the start of a big change, a sliding doors moment for a kid from a council estate. And what of that council estate? Before we head to private school with Carly and to a local state school I went to with her brothers, that's where we're heading in this episode. You're listening to Class Divide, a podcast about educational inequality in the UK. I'm Curtis James, an ethnographic photographer, researcher and filmmaker. I'm part of a campaign group trying to make education fairer in the city of Brighton and Hove, where I grew up. It's only 50 years since full-time education until the age of 16 became a right for everyone, regardless of wealth and background. But outcomes for poorer kids haven't really changed. In the UK, the attainment gap between poorer, disadvantaged children and their better-off classmates is as large now as it was 20 years ago. Somehow it feels we're not seen as worth investing in, and our school system fails us. It happened to me and a lot of the kids I grew up with. The council's latest data from 2019 reveals that only 37% of young people from Whitehawk, Manor Farm and Bristol Estate get basic grades at GCSE English and Maths, leaving school at a serious disadvantage to the city-wide average of 69% in the same year. Despite being half as likely to succeed in these subjects, there is no strategy in place from Brighton Hove City Council to address this. In this series, I'm uncovering the roots of segregation in Britain's schools and the impact this has on lives. I'm meeting the people fighting for change, and I'm looking for solutions to make our education system work for everyone, not just the privileged few. But perhaps most importantly, I want you to meet the people being left behind by our current school system. Because their story is so rarely told, our community's forgotten or only seen through a discriminatory lens. 
which is why in this episode we're going to spend some time in Whitehawk with its residents. We'll look at the challenges people face here in one of the UK's most deprived communities. And we'll hear how places like the estate where I grew up on became stigmatised and ignored. Episode 2, The Hills and the Hollows. So we're in Whitehawk, the back garden of my childhood home. Carly and me are in Whitehawk, retracing a few childhood footsteps. The street was really important to us when we were kids, so I'm going to take you out onto the street. <laughs> so we'd always come through the back gate because no one ever used the front door. And then this is essentially what was our playground, I suppose. So we had the, the close was full of other families who had two, three or four kids. Um, and we essentially were like a big group of kids that would play out from the minute we got up to the minute our mums called us in for dinner or it got dark. Um, and everyone knew everyone in the street and all the mums would look out for everyone else's kids. Whitehawk is one of the UK's most deprived communities, but under the tarmac and terraced houses lie the remains of one of the UK's most important archaeological sites. So I've climbed to the top of Whitehawk Hill with Carly Goldsmith and we're looking out across Whitehawk Estate. And the hill that we're standing on is the first place people settled in Brighton um, 5,500 years ago. Predates Stonehenge by about a thousand years and it's, it's right under our feet. Carly, describe to me what we can see in front of us. So you've got a big blue sky and you also have an amazing sea view. So the fact that you can see the sea from here always astonishes me. Um, and right around the estate is green space. So you've got the start of the South Downs um, and you've got Brighton Racecourse. Um, down in the valley is the estate itself with all of the housing. But there are large kind of green spaces on the estate. And I think one of the things that people often don't realise or recognise is actually quite how beautiful it is. I can see the house I grew up in and the close that I grew up in. I can see the, the school where my dad went to school. Whenever I look out at this view, I suppose the one thing to me, it's often a very emotional response. I think it's difficult for people to understand sometimes because often council estates are seen as bad places or they have a reputation as a bad place. And I understand that there are problems here and I understand that people are struggling here and I understand that I struggled, we struggled when, when I was growing up. But I guess the thing that overrides a lot of that is the friendship of the people that live around you and the comradeship, in a way, of the people that are kind of in a similar situation. The other thing I can see directly in front of me is sheep grazing, which often makes people laugh when they come and visit the estate and you point out the fact that there are sheep grazing up on the hill. It's a really odd mixture between kind of urban but an estate that sits on the fringes of an urban place. Um, but it's much greener and it's much more beautiful than people often think. This hill with so much history became the barrier, the thing that hid our community away on the fringes of Brighton. Out of sight of the rest of the city, mostly, we're also out of mind. 
Growing up in Whitehawk, nobody expects you to amount to much. Three fallacies about poor people continue. It's their fault. They haven't worked hard enough. And poor people have no aspirations. The estate was built between 1933 and 1937, and for the early residents, it was a dream come true. I met up with a group called the Whitehawk Bygones to find out more about the history of the place. Shall we have a cup of tea and a bit of cake? Yeah. Well, my full name was Kathleen Dilloway when I lived there at Whitehawk. I moved there when I was seven years old. Brand new house, and it was in Fletching Road, which was the road that the church was at the bottom, because it was a whole new estate, you know. I had quite a good life there um, from a childhood, and, um, and my brothers and sisters also joined the football club, Whitehawk Football Club. We used to have eight, ten coaches every Saturday, taking us to different matches, you know. So the community was was really built up. It was really great. Well, I'm Marion Brooke. I wasn't brought up in Whitehawk. I actually lived in Elm Grove. Um, Whitehawk had a bad name. And it did when I was a, a child. You know what it's like. P places get names for no reason, really. But the people that moved to Whitehawk... A lot of them came from the very poor areas of Brighton, mm. the ones that all the places they'd pulled down. So perhaps they thought all these people were coming in or they've got to be rough and it just gets a name when it doesn't deserve it. In episode one, we heard about the UK's deeply embedded historic class system made up of the deserving rich, the hard-working, aspiring middle class, and the undeserving poor. If you were unlucky enough to be born in a slum, you were the bottom of the heap and expected to stay there. Even if you now found yourself transplanted to a brand new home in Whitehawk, the community never shook off its reputation. And this matters, because if you're a kid on a sink estate, chances are your local schools will be underfunded, no middle-class parents will send their kids there, and many experienced teachers won't teach there either. And if you don't get a good education, well, then anything you achieve in life will be hard-won and in stubborn defiance of low expectations for kids like us. John Boughton is a social historian and writer of books on the history of council estates. His blog, Municipal Dreams, charts the history of council housing and council estates across the UK. Council housing overwhelmingly in its early years, it's, you know, for several decades, uh, catered very powerfully for that better off working class, those with higher incomes and steady employment. Council housing was seen as a step up. It was aspirational housing. It marked a huge improvement on what most people had known. And so it was you know, very broadly seen as a, a positive contribution to social welfare and, and well-being. By 1930, there was a realisation amongst uh, politicians that actually council housing wasn't doing what it was intended to do, which was to rehouse those in the poorest conditions. And 
in practice, therefore, the sort of poorer working class. And so there's a real legislative shift from 1930 to actually rehouse slum dwellers, so-called. And I think that's what alarms the sort of housing officers and housing management at the time, that they're actually catering for, a, as they would understand it, an inferior population, those who were less kind of culturated into respectable norms and behaviour. Into the 19, later 1960s, into the 1970s and 80s, what you do find, to generalise, are increasingly negative perceptions of, of council states. You, you get a language which emerges into the 70s of so-called failing estates, the term sink estates first uh, employed in 1975. Back with the Whitehawk bygones, we're standing over a table of scrapbooks and newspaper clippings. That's where everybody came from. Marion is showing me photographs of the old slums in the centre of Brighton. I think that's where it got its reputation. Yeah. Because that's where... It was from the slums of Brighton. It was the slums of Brighton that they people came from. Just looking at the people, um, definitely very poor. Oh, God. You know, an old bloke sitting on the pavement looking absolutely dejected. But, I mean, the thing was, that that's all they had, isn't it? Mm. So moving to Whitehall, fancy moving oh. from that to that. To that, yeah. Yeah. It would literally be like walking into paradise, wouldn't it? The first houses in Whitehawk were designed to have all of the modern conveniences, including electricity, gas and running water. They also had gardens. It was a world away from the overcrowded slums in the city centre they replaced, where poor sanitation had bred diseases like typhoid and smallpox. Whitehawk had a library, a school, even a lido down by the sea. I was only, as I say, um, six or seven when I moved over. Mm. And uh, it was wonderful. When the house was what you call back to front. My mm. house from the kitchen was in the front. But we couldn't get over the wide pavements, verge, grass verges mm. and the roads. And I mean, beautiful. we used to play in them. Yeah. But it's quite sad, though, that people moved, but because they'd come from the slums, then people thought that that area was all horrible. Yeah. The perception of East Brighton's three estates, Whitehawk, Manor Farm and Bristol Estate, as being scary places where bad people live, has persisted over the years. Local resident Sandy told me about an uncle who had negative views of the estate. He thought, you know, the kids are so bad around here that, yeah, you can't leave your car parked anywhere because you'll come out and your wheels will be gone. But it's always been like that all my life. So, I mean, I've always lived here and I, I couldn't imagine living anywhere else because I, I wouldn't want to leave Whitehawk. When people come to Whitehawk and they're like, oh, actually, the community is very together. Carly's brother, Aaron. They lay all frowned upon us. They all looked down upon us. But we, we had all that heart. We looked after our own. I remember old ladies coming out the pub, the Valley Social Centre, and we'd be helping them on their way home. Like, this is a community. We all look after each other. Do you know what I mean? And 90% of the people did. People would never really know what we had to do to save our own community. Do you know what I mean? To look after our own community because no one else was doing it for us. Simple as that. <laughs> You know, if anyone said to my sister, where, where do you live or where do you come from? She would just say Brighton. She wouldn't say Whitehawk. 
because then, you know, people look down their noses at you or like, oh, oh, you really live there? Or, and it's like, well, yeah, I haven't got three heads. Uh, you know, my kids are <laughs> like just out on the streets all night. It's, yeah. And Ryan, another one of Carly's brothers, still feels the impact of this stigma now. If you lived in Wattle, or wherever you went, if you mentioned that fact, you were looked at completely different than five minutes before that, you know? I still get it now. I've run my whole life on, on the basis people worried because I was from Wattle, you know? And it's like, I used to find myself overcompensating everywhere in life to make people not think that of me, you know? I feel that 100%. You know, I, I went through a period of my life where I... I'm a bit ashamed of it now where I sort of had to hide the fact that I came from Whitehawk because Done I was that a lot of times. so worried about what people would think of me. Or, yeah, yeah, didn't want the question coming up. Do you know? I don't know where you're from. You know, as soon as that came, I used to think, oh, God. Even for my football, it went as far as Brighton schools. I used to be so good at football. Brighton schools, um, even when I went for trials, all that sort of stuff, I was, I was frowned upon. You know, because they were all from Ove Park and Cardin Newman and this, that and the other. I used to sit in the all feeling vulnerable and, uh, you know, it was, uh, it was like that all the time. That's been going on a long time. I remember my nan having different accents for when she visited the Bancor post office, her posh town voice that sounded a bit like Margaret Thatcher. And in my 30s, all those years later, I was advised to have some lessons to change my voice. I chatted with another Whitehawk parent as her kids played, and I asked her why she thought people looked down on council estates. Because they think everyone just doesn't work. They think everyone who's got a council house doesn't work. That's not the case at all. There's only a stigma now you're older. My children don't, don't realise they're any different. They know their dad goes to work, their dad comes home. They get stuff because he goes to work and they go to school. There's no difference in that. And they don't comment about some a family who doesn't go to work because they don't know any different. They don't know that household to make the opinion. When you're older, you do. You're dictated to. Why don't you go to work? Why don't you have to go to work? Because I don't work, my partner does. I did work, but circumstances meant I didn't need to go to work. What do you think it does to an area when it's constantly being treated like that? It makes it worse. The kids feel like they can do what they want because there's always that stigma above their head that... They are not going to do any better than anybody else. But my niece grew up here from newborn and she's just got a bachelor's at university. So she grew up in a council estate and she did well. It means you have to prove something. And you either get kids that are going to prove something or you're going to get kids that are just going to keep that label and say, I can't do no better and carry on with what they're doing. Do you think that there's a sense that kids from an area like this, I guess they're... It just, it's almost like there's no aspiration for them. Yeah, but I feel like that's the parents as well. I do feel like the parents have grown up here, had their kids here, and they also accidentally, not always on purpose, put it in their heads that they couldn't do it so their kids can't do it. It's a story of stigma and low expectations across the UK. Writer, performer and activist Byron Vincent describes life on estates where he grew up in the north of England. I'm council house and benefits raised. I had a very tumultuous youth. I've also got neurodiverse diagnoses. The place that I consider home, I was actually only there for like five or six years. We ended up on a council estate, a satellite estate between Preston Chorley and uh, Leyland, which are all small northern towns that were on the decline. 
It had a reputation locally, but all all estates do if you don't come from one, don't they? To me, it felt like this bucolic idyll because there was a there was a big uh, nature reserve near it, and it's sort of out of sight, out of mind. It was a satellite estate. It was a a satellite sink estate, so they placed them out of the way, and uh, there was a big industrial estate next to it, and nothing else other than Lancashire countryside. As a very young person, I just thought it was quite green and idyllic. And then as you get older and when you start going to school, you become aware that people do an intake of breath when you tell them where you grow up or they patronise you or, or there's some kind of noticeable reaction that feeds into your sense of identity. I hear stories from teenagers or kids that have just left school in Whitehawk not putting their postcode on job applications because the sort of stigma of the area is just so great that, like you say, there'll be an intake of breath. I mean, I've got mates that, you know, I've met after after sort of growing up, didn't realise I grew up in that area. And, you, and you'd and be like, oh, um, yeah, where, where'd you grow up? And you'd be like, Whitehawk. And they'd be like, what? <laughs> like it was like this awful place. But like you say, every estate, if you haven't grown up on it, has that sort of reputation. Yeah, and, and some, some are obviously worse than others. And, and Claytonbrook was a big place and there was places within Claytonbrook that were deemed worse than others. But then I moved to really, you know, deprived, socially deprived areas that were... I've lived in high-rises. I've lived in the, the places that everybody thinks are scary, where, where, like you said, you can't really tell anybody where you live because there's an immediate judgment and an immediate fear as well. It's written all over people's faces. Culture is defined by people outside of the environments that we grew up in. You know, it's defined through a a very middle-class lens. We get feedback about who we are from the media, you know, this one-dimensional caricature of what it means to grow up in an underclass situation or a benefits household or whatever you want to call it and that comes through tv and papers at us and then council estates tend to be these isolated places surrounded by the rest of the world and they're very insular and they're microcosms and there's a lot of people struggling and there's a lot of trauma and um, stress and that manifests in all kinds of negative behavior and you are hyper aware of the judgment that comes along with living where you live or, or just being poor. I'd suggest that it isn't just culture that is defined by people outside of the environments people like Byron and me grew up in. All policy, whether it be town planning, education, health, policing, all of it has been defined through outsiders' eyes the eyes of people who didn't grow up on estates. And if that's the case, how might it have impacted me and my fellow East Brightonians? The lens that many look at working class and council estate people through is, on the whole, negative. It means that all kinds of services, including the police, are designed to expect something bad. Carly's brother, Aaron, again. They saw us as kids when we were in the streets, as a lot we're hooligans. But that's one thing we never was, hooligans. The police would think we're sitting there, a bunch of youths, up to no good. Because the police just had their opinion 
of who we are and where we're from. The stigma seeps into all professional services and affects how those services are delivered. Outsiders see the stigma first, not us. Jill Cloth was head of Comart, the only secondary school in the community, between 2001 and 2003. I knew about the reputation of the White Hawker Strait. I also knew that, because I'd been in Brighton a number of times, that it looked very pretty. Before Jill started at the school, she visited the local health centre to get a sense of the community. They said, well, there are people who find it difficult to keep appointments because they can't read a calendar, so we have to think how to show them that. And they were the people who told me that the big issues in Whitehawk were not drugs and gang violence. They said it was domestic violence and incest. I believed the health centre when they told me. There are many stories told about Whitehawk and estates like it by people who don't live in them, and it colours everything. If the power brokers at the local authority have a negative perception of a community, it affects the decisions they make about how we're provided for. And the stigma makes people with the power to change things blind to a generational cycle of issues. Poverty, neglect, alcohol and drug problems. It's all left to local people to pick up the pieces. When Carly Goldsmith and her brothers were embarking on their school journeys, they were noticing some of the impact of this stigma. I was aware that a lot of the people that, including all of my family and a lot of people we lived around, didn't really have very much. So there was quite a bit of, like, a lot of people struggling. And also, at the time, the estate had quite a bad heroin problem, which had caught up some members of my own family, and they were struggling with addictions, and, and there were lots of people that were from Whitehawk that had just got caught up in heroin addiction. And that meant that there were a lot of really unwell people. And I see addiction as an illness, not as a a kind of criminal activity. And I think that that meant that you saw a lot of people that you knew and that you loved get quite sick. And lots of people died during that time. And I wasn't the only person in, in my friendship group or who I knew that was struggling with things like poverty or domestic violence or just having quite a tough time as children. And I very much see that as at least in part connected to the poverty we were forced to live in and the stigma and discrimination, I think, that we suffered because we lived here. There wasn't that much help in the 80s and 90s. In some ways it feels like a different era, in other ways it doesn't. I think there is a kind of combination of pressures around struggling to kind of earn a living and make a living struggles with kind of mental health, struggles with addiction, struggles with all sorts of things really that kids growing up on council estates may be more likely to experience, although it's not unique to them. There have been attempts to support the community over the years. One standout project, eb for You, funded by the then Labour government's New Deal for Communities, saw £47 million arrive in East Brighton. I remember the photo op with Tony and Sherry Blair, joined by Jack Straw, standing in front of the Swanborough Flats in Whitehawk back in 2001. Some locals have strong opinions about New Deal funding and what happened with it. 
One told me about an encounter with one of the project leaders brought in from the outside to decide how the funding should be spent. He asked them how much their salary was, knowing it was in the region of £60,000. He told me about all the locals that were brought in as volunteers, and he called eb for You a job creation scheme for the middle class, who, he said, all disappeared when the money ran out. Darren McGarvey, author of The Social Distance Between Us. One of the reasons that the facilitators who kind of parachute into these communities rub people up the wrong way is because it's a terribly imperialist way to behave. It's rooted in the assumption, first of all, that you as the person going in, the do-gooder, the person who is resourced with the expertise and the money to go in and make a change, is endowed with specialist knowledge that the community lack, and that your job is to kind of take the disposable container of the community and fill it with redemptive qualities, education, literacy, a wider outlook on life, when actually that's a sort of imperialist way to, to go about trying to bring people along with you. When you live on a council estate, it feels like the kind of place that's easy for people to forget about. Whitehawk is hidden away on the outskirts of Brighton, a convenient location that's out of sight and out of mind for many. It's something I chatted to a local parent, Sandy, about. We are that little council estate that no one wants to know. No one wants to pay for improvements for schools or pavements or roads or zebra crossings. But also a place that's got such a long history of that and so whether or not that's always been explicit or said to us, but we've grown up with a feeling that, well, this is how it is. Yeah. And so we can't do anything about it. That, that's part of what I, I think is going on here. It's part of the problem, you know, you live in a place for so long where you feel like that's as good as it's going to get, you're going to run out of energy at some point fighting it. These stories paint an important picture of neglect, systemic neglect, of a whole community by many of the people in power. And people in places like Whitehawk have to live with that. The powerful shockwaves still cause, in some cases, irreparable damage to families. To know what to do now, we have to understand what went wrong. And I don't think this story has ever been told by the people at the heart of it. The people having to live with its consequences. In the next episode, we'll be finding out what happened to Carly and her brothers when they went to two very different schools in Brighton. They should just lock us in that room and leave us in that room all day and write lines. Could not do this, I should not do that all day. Yeah, I'd be classed as faulty, wouldn't it, you know? Someone could have tried to push you in the right direction. That Saturday morning when I was stood here opening that letter with my mum, I think it was the first point at which I really realised that things were going to change and I was doing something that was really very unknown to me. They teach us. Core episodes will be released every other week. And on the weeks in between, I'll be getting together with Carly Goldsmith to talk about some of the things that came up in the most recent episode. So make sure you're subscribed on your podcast app to access that. And if you're about to hit that subscribe button, please consider leaving us a rating and review. It really helps spread the word. Class Divide was written and produced by me, Curtis James. The executive producer is Eve Streeter. Location recording, sound design, post-production and mixing is by Simon James with editorial support by Carly Goldsmith. Music in this episode was kindly donated by Olivier Aleri, 
Salvatore Mercatanti, Benjamin Harrison, Trams, Shida Shahibi, Polypaws, Max de Wardner, Clarice Jensen, Toy Drum, and the official body. The series was funded by necessity, and if you'd like to support the Class Divide campaign, follow at Divide Class on Twitter and Instagram, or visit the website classdivide.co.uk. I'd like to say thank you to everyone who's taken part. This series couldn't have happened without many people putting their trust in me to tell these important stories. There are also people who shared their stories with me and whose voices haven't ended up in the series. Many of the things those people share with me are definitely here as ideas and inspiration. I also need to thank the Crew Club, Daniel Nathan, Alex at Fat Cat Records, Colin at Castles in Space and Jimmy Berlianto for their help and support. Please help spread the word by subscribing to the podcast and leaving us a rating and review. Until next time, I'll see you next week.